as has been mentioned, of course, not only is Easter a cultural kind of holiday, but it's it's actually one of, if not arguably, the most important day in the Christian calendar, um, the Christian rhythm, the Christian commemoration of Jesus' resurrection. I mean, it's it's arguably more important than Christmas. It's arguably more important than every other thing that we celebrate. Um, and it's the day. It's worth repeating because it does get s- it can get swallowed up in egg hunts and you know marketing and all that stuff. It's just worth repeating that it is the day that we intentionally remember. We set aside time and energy to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That's what today is about. And I've heard people say, you know, like I used to get, I'm, b- I'm really big on the church calendar and rhythms, and, you know, if you know me, that's not a surprise to you, but I used to get pushback from people be like, well, shouldn't we celebrate the resurrection every day? I'm like, well, yeah, but I would challenge you to go back and tell your spouse, I just celebrate our wedding every day, so we're just gonna not going to be using for our anniversary anymore. You know, uh, see, how that, see how that goes over. So uh, it's, it's a well and good in theory to celebrate the resurrection every day, but it is important because we are humans and we are limited in our imagination and our capacity to do thing, all things every day. It's important to set aside times to intentionally celebrate, as well as times to intentionally mourn, and that's what Good Friday is about if you were here for a Good Friday service. Um, so today is about celebration. Today is about resurrection. And I'm going to obviously talk a lot about resurrection in what follows. That's the focus. That's the main theme of everything this morning. But before I get, before I talk about resurrection explicitly in that way, I want to talk about something that might seem a little out of left field at first. Um, but I want to talk about what I, one reason why I believe resurrection can be so hard to, for us to believe in today. I want to talk about why it's so hard for it to sink into our minds and into our imagination. And that is a concept known as plausibility structures. So I know, I know, coming out of left field. Uh, hang with me for a second. Um, there's a concept that sociologists, cultural theorists call plausibility structure. Has anyone heard this term before? Um, so it's actually really, it sounds super academic and like complicated, but it's actually very simple. A plausibility structure, what it means is, if you think about it, if you think about breaking down the words, it'll make sense to you. A plausibility structure simply means that everything that we assume is possible, or more importantly, impossible, is contained within this complicated and invisible kind of matrix of ideas, of truth claims, of propositions, of values um, that just operate around us. A plausibility structure, it's, a, it's something we all live in. We live in a plausibility structure. It's, a, it's, a, it's in our culture. Um, it's the air we breathe, in a sense. It's the water you swim in, so to speak, in its metaphors. People who lived in medieval Europe or people who lived in ancient Mesopotamia, for example, had extremely different plausibility structures around them, right? Makes sense if you stop and think about it. So for them, for someone in ancient Mesopotamia, the I- and you can see where I'm going with this maybe, the idea that a divine transcendent being could interact with the world and do something that impacted your life, that idea was not outside of the plausibility structure for someone in ancient Mesopotamia, right? In fact, quite the opposite, it was actually expected. A flood was a divine being doing something that could very much impact your life and your ability to farm your crops. And so that was just part of the rhythm of life, part of culture, part of everything that they assumed. It's in their plausibility structure. On the other hand, our in the modern, postmodern, late modern, hypermodern, whatever word you want to use, uh, West, in North America, where we live, our plausibility structure, for sure, does not include resurrection. 
and it doesn't. So it's not included. It's not there. Does not include divine beings interacting with us. Does not include the possibility, much less the possibility of our life being like impacted by divine action. It's not. It's just not in the way that we live and the way that we assume the world works. We are too quote advanced, too quote scientific, too quote evolved, too whatever, you know, fill in the blank, to to think that that's true. One of my favorite philosophers calls this uh, disenchantment. He says we've disenchanted the world. We've drained it of the possibility of spiritual meaning. We've drained it of the possibility of transcendence. We've drained it of the possibility, certainly, of resurrection. Um, we've drained the world. We've built our culture around that idea, and then we assume that it's just not possible for something like Jesus' resurrection to happen. Everything, part of the corollary to that is that everything we, therefore, everything we can trust knowledge we can trust, ideas that can impact our lives, all of that must be able to be verified, dissected, analyzed, reproduced in a lab or according to a scientific theory, right? I, don't, I hope that none of this is like, I'm guessing this is not super surprising to you. I'm just reminding us, I'm trying to call our imaginations to remind us of just how we live week to week and how we operate day to day. We operate in this disenchanted state uh, just day, day in, day out. And it's not our fault, we just live in it. We've inherited it in a way. We've inherited this assumed idea that there's no such thing as divinity, transcendence, God, people and things and creatures, especially people, just don't come back to life. That's just how it works. We all know that, right? This is how we live. So I'm, pa I'm parking on this for a minute here because I'm coming. I, I just felt this really keenly this week, obviously, because I've been meditating on the resurrection all week, well, even before this week, but knowing Easter was coming up and knowing I'd be speaking about this, I've just been thinking about this so much. And I'm coming to you this morning with a message of resurrection, and I recognize that, that message and that idea on a pretty fundamental level conflicts with the entire plausibility structure that we all live in. It just does. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. And this includes Christians. I think I think we, and I include myself in this, I am in the same plausibility structure that all of us live in. And so I think if we're brutally honest, really, really honest, in, a, in, a, in an honest moment, I think it would feel impossible to believe that the resurrection really happened. Like, it just, f it, just it pushes on us. And, but not only that it actually happened, but that it's also promised to us in our future. Like, set aside doubts for a second and just imagine that promise. Just, like, let it sink in for a second. Not only did it happen in the past, but it's promised to us in our future as well. We are destined for resurrection. Our plausibility structure operates to try to keep us from believing that. But the power of believing that really does have the power to literally transform your life. Like every way, every way you interact with people, every way you interact with your, your family, your job, your it just everybody, and everything you do can be utterly transformed by allowing this belief to sink in, to get through our plausibility structures. That's why I'm starting here, because I want to recognize all this tension up front. And I what what I want to do this morning, because the entire core of what I want to talk about is completely outside of our plausibility structures. I don't want to soften that or pretend that that's not true. And what I, and I'm not going to try to give you proofs, you know, I'm not going to try to give you logical arguments for these are five reasons to believe the resurrection probably happens. I'm not, I'm just not going to do that because in a way that would be using the tools our, of our plausibility structure to try to make the resurrection fit inside it, right? I'm just not interested in doing that. 
that kind of leaves me feeling a little like cold and dead inside, <laughs> right? So I am just here, I'm just here to proclaim it. I'm just here to tell you through the text that we've been given what happened, what I believe happened. I'm not going to try to make it fit. I'm going to instead, I'm going to call you to imagine it and to cling to it by faith and by belief and by hope that resurrection happened to the Son of God and that it was promised to be our destination as well and that therefore love is stronger than death. God's love is stronger than death. And I just really think that we need, uh, we're going we're gonna to step through the story that was read a moment ago that Ken read. Uh, we're going to step through it and I just want us my prayer, and I can't, I can't do this even if I give you the slickest sermon. I, I can't make this happen. But my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would, would just crumble our plausibility structures this morning. That it would just invade, invade those structures, invade those limited imaginations that we have, and just give, give us something new. Bear fruit in our lives to such an extent that we would, we would actually be renewed, right, by the resurrection. So that's what I'm hoping God will do. <laughs> um, so just know, on this Easter morning in 2022, wherever you come into this morning with doubts, with hope, with joy, or uh, wherever you're at, I think the proclamation of this story could, could have something for all of us, could call us all to a new place. So let me pray for our time, and then we'll look at the text. Uh, Lord, I just pray that um, you would do something new. I, for myself and on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, I submit our very frail, weak, limited, shallow plausibility structures to you this morning. I just submit them to you. Would you break them open where they need to be broken? Would you fill them with something new where they need to be filled? And ultimately, would you call us into new life, into deeper faith, hope, and love? Through the name of your son. Amen. So we're going to look at the short account of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a, a Bible with you or a device or something you want to follow along, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28. It was read um, a few minutes ago. So go ahead and go to the first slide, James. Uh, what I want to do is uh, step through the story. And like I said, I'm going to focus more on imagination, trying to draw us into the story. Um, and by the way, if you've been with us, you'll know this, but we have been traveling through the Gospel of Matthew since the beginning of the year, and starting in January. And today, today and next week, we're finishing the gospel. So today's going to be about resurrection. Next week is going to be about um, the Great Commission, which follows the story. Um, and so here we are at the kind of the culmination of the whole story that Matthew's been telling in Matthew chapter 28. And so uh, I'm not going to reread the whole story. Um, I'm just going to highlight some parts of it. But it says, Matthew 28 starts after the events of Good Friday, after the crucifixion, after the burial of Jesus in the tomb. The text tells us after in first verse, after Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week. This is really an important detail right away at the very beginning. This is all happening on the first day of the week. I really believe that every word of scripture that's given to us is, is not um, happenstance or accidental. Um, when it says at dawn on the first day of the week, this is recalling what's another important week in the biblical story. Creation, yeah. This is recalling the first day of the creation week. After the Sabbath on at dawn on the first 
day. The resurrection, Matthew is signaling to us, the resurrection is happening at the first day in the, in the new creation of the new world. The old world was the world in which death reigned supreme. The old world, the, the first creation, so to speak, was the world in which that was subject, as scripture says, to the, to, the, to the ruler of the powers of the air, right? To the principalities and powers. That's the old world. This world, which is dawning on this first day of this new creation week, is the world in which resurrection punctures the power of death and re- starts to replace it. A new reality is breaking in. A new creation is replacing the old one. And so the women have no idea that they are walking into this, right? This is their, they're just, they're going to mourn their friend. Their plausibility structures still have death as the operative power, right? And so they're walking to the tomb to mourn their friend, but they are walking into the first day of this new creation. And upon their approach, as was read a minute ago, a really dramatic, mysterious thing happens. There's an earthquake and an, and an angelic appearance, some sort of angelic, t- talk about plausibility structures and what we think is possible or not, right? Uh, some sort of angelic appearance um, happens to them and interacts with them. And mystery is all over this. Like, I, I, ca- I can't claim to know what it exactly it felt like or what exactly kind of that whole experience was like. But what I want to zoom in on for a second, which is really easy to overlook, I think, is um, the reaction of the guards, the Roman guards, right? So if you, if you have the scene in your mind, the women are walking to the tomb to mourn their friend. In the tomb, they know that Jesus is buried in. There's also Roman guards posted out front of it, which it's an interesting detail. That's kind of an odd thing. That wasn't super, from what we understand and know, that wasn't super common for guards to be posted outside of tombs of dead dead bodies. (laughs) Um, Seems like not the best use of your uh, police force, (laughs) right? But but nevertheless, it it is what the text tells us happened, and I do believe it happened. Um, I think it has something to do with the, the mysterious following that Jesus had and his disciples But that's a side note. What we do know is that the guards were there. The women approached. And what I want to focus on is the guards just for a second. Because we're going to talk about the guards more in a minute. But the women and the guards experience on some level the same exact dramatic, mysterious, wild event. They experience an earthquake, a sound, some sort of angelic appearance and an angelic message. And the text tells us that the guards, one translation, which actually I had Ken specifically read this translation, it says the guards became like corpses, which is really ironic in the, s- in the story that we're looking at, right? The guards who were there to guard the dead body become dead bodies. <laughs> uh, the guards um, who were there to keep anything like this from happening become like corpses. They keel over. I think that there's a really thick irony here. And if you really sit and think about it, what we have here is the powerful, the powerful are struck down. As Mary's prayer in the Magnificat says, pull the mighty down, right? Literally in this scene, the mighty, the guards, the symbol of the Roman power that is oppressing the Jewish people and also as the ones that the Jewish leadership corroborated with to execute the Lord of glory, the mighty ones are pulled down in front of the tomb. And the women who especially in the context of the time, are the quote-unquote weak. They are the socially marginalized. They are generally, like, uh, it's actually a a point of fact that at this time, the testimony of women was not allowed in situations of law, in, like, legal courts, because their testimony was distrusted, right? They are economically much more disempowered in many ways, um, educationally. There's a lot of social realities which, which disempower and marginalize women in the ancient world. 
And what we have here is a scene in which the women and the Roman guards, symbols of might and symbols of weakness, experience the exact same event. And who is struck down and become like corpses and who stands firm and receives the word of life? Right. All the women are like, (laughs) (laughs) this is what happens. God chose these women to give this message to. And the 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 Roman guards who are armed with weapons and armor keel over and become like corpses in the face of the exact same event. guards are so afraid that they, they, they pass out or something and the defenseless women stand firm and so upon hearing this from this angelic presence that their friend has been raised and gone on ahead into Galilee the women leave that so the guards apparently they just left the guards I guess I don't know uh, they left the guards on the ground and the women leave and it says that they leave with a mixture of fear and great joy. And that phrase has really struck, stuck out to me this week as well, because I can't imagine a, a better description of the emotional experience of receiving news of the resurrection. Fear and great joy. And I think, because I'm focusing so much on imaginations and kind of emotional response this morning, I think if we experience some mixture of those two things as well, we're in good company. You experience, as, if as a result of reflecting on resurrection this morning, you experience some combination of hope and excitement that it could be true and fear of not being sure if it could be true and mystery, not being sure how this works and what this means, that interplay, I believe, help my unbelief. If you experience that, you're right, you're right there with the women that morning. So that gives me a lot of comfort in that setting. It's okay to be excited about the idea and the hope of resurrection and still experience some fear and unknown. It's what the women experienced, and they're the exactly who God trusted to take this message out. So, on this first day of the new creation order, the new resurrected creation, the women leave the scene in fear and great joy. And I think at this moment, their resurre- that great joy part means their resurrection imagination, their plausibility structures, so to speak, have been cracked open. Their imagination has been sparked. Even if they don't know exactly what that means yet, it's still been sparked. And so I, get, I like to picture it as like an ember kind of glowing. And so what I want to do now, I want to pause on the women and I want to move back to the guards because there is a fascinating little paragraph on what the guards do in the face of the same exact experience. And I think what we'll see is that while the women's imagination has been started to be kind of deconstructed and rebuilt, the guards are in the exact opposite place. I think they are persisting in their imagination of death. They're persisting in their old plausibility structures. Despite what they saw and experienced, they saw and experienced on some level the same exact thing. But they haven't been converted. They haven't been renewed. Uh, And so I want to read, and this was not in the reading earlier, so I'm going to read it now. Um, If you go to the next slide too, James. Um, starting in verse 11, and you can follow along. I'm reading the NIV. <laughs> Keep all this in mind. It says, while the women were on their way, so af- after the women left that place, some of the guards went into the city, and rep- the city being Jerusalem, and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say... His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. So apparently it's better to say they were sleeping on the job and somehow let disciples roll the tomb away and get the body out. Apparently that's a better deal uh, than what actually happened. Um, If this report gets to the governor, meaning Pilate, their boss, 
we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money. Yeah, I can't help but think about Judas taking the money. Like his money is all over some of these interactions. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been circulated among the Jews to this very day. Man, there could be an entire sermon just on these verses. But what I want to highlight is that you have this cooperation between the Roman guards and the Jewish religious elite leadership. It's very reminiscent of what actually happened that led up to the crucifixion itself. The Jewish leadership in who were entrenched in power cooperated with the oppressing Roman Empire, whom they used to always think were their enemy. They cooperated with them instead to crucify this Messiah figure. And even after his resurrection, they go back to the exact same patterns. This is on display what it looks like when plausibility structures do not get broken or get intervened by God. This is what we do. We go back to money. We go back to wealth. We go back to entrenched power. This is... This is part of why I think warnings about wealth and warnings about power are all over the New Testament and the Old Testament, frankly. Read the prophets. This whole thing is fueled by fear in some ways. Fear of losing power, fear of losing status, fear of getting in trouble by the governor. It says that the chief elders, which are, it's easy to miss the cooperation of Jew and Roman here because of the language, but the, when it says talks about the chief elders, it's talking about the Jewish religious establishment, right? So when the chief elders pay the guards a significant s amount of money to propagate a lie, they are very much complicit in this whole deal. And they promise to keep these guards safe in a sense. They, they listen, picture this. This is what's happening. The Jewish religious leaders are promising to keep their Roman oppressing guards safe from getting in trouble from the Roman oppressing governor by paying them a lot of money. Where did that money come from? It probably came from the Jewish people who were paying the taxes, you know. It, this is the, the amount of willful denial of what's happened is, and the amount of willful holding on to power, to fear, to, to, to money. The, the willful actions here are just thick over this entire interaction. The guards are or, or the, the Jewish leaders are promising to keep the guards out of trouble from their boss Pilate, the governor. And also, there's an easy thing to miss here. This is really striking to me this week. I don't want you to miss this either. The guards are apparently more afraid of getting in trouble than they are of the earthquake and the angel that they just interacted with at the tomb, right? W one of these fears is eclipsing the other. I would like to think that if I experienced something like the day of crucifixion, I would be okay with whatever my boss thought. <laughs> uh, I would like to think that would upend my entire priorities, right? But it doesn't happen, and I think this goes back to what is plausible, right? What is plausible and what is important to you has power, power to eclipse what God might be doing in the world. Let that be a word of warning for us this morning. That we can miss what God is doing in the world. We're afraid of losing our power in the earth, our wealth in the earth, our status, our influence, especially if the implications of what God is doing in the world might be uncomfortable for those things. We can, I think this story is telling us, we can choose to go back to those things instead of resurrection and aggravation. I think the Romans and the Jewish elite they just could not allow Jesus, the possibility of the resurrection to be true. They could not allow it to invade their imaginations and destroy the ability of plausibility structure. And I think that's why this paragraph is in this story. It's a word of warning to us. And the 
the face of resurrection week, few could choose to operate with what's familiar. We, we could just willfully deny it. Especially when things like money get involved, right? Can dominate our imagination. But we're circling back around to the good news because the beautiful counterpart to this entire image of all these men, it's men too, apparently, all these men in smoky rooms making deals, <laughs> trying to concoct a story, keep their power, keep their, you know, use money to, to, to control. The beautiful counterpart to that image is the image of a small group of frightened, joyful, confused, socially powerless, socially marginalized women who are nevertheless imbued with great joy and carrying an impossible to believe message that's about to be unleashed through the world and literally change it, literally transform the world. That huddled group of women who are traveling along the road, that's, that's who I would prefer to be with than the men in this room. I would like my imagination to be changed by them, if you will, them. And I hope you would too. So I want to jump back to the story of the women. You can go to the last slide now. As the women are traveling with this news, with this pronouncement, they actually, they actually get an appearance from Jesus. So it's important to remember, they hadn't actually heard directly from Jesus at this point. Jesus appears to them. They are acting on the news from the angel, from the angelic presence. And Jesus initiates to them. He greets them. And this is, when that, that greetings with an exclamation part, it's, it, it's hard to uh, grasp this in the English. I don't, I don't like, I don't know, I don't like talking about the Greek so much because it kind of makes you feel like you can't understand the Bible in English, and that's not true. So I, I do this with a little bit of, you know, fear and trembling. But it is interesting that if you go into the Greek on that word in particular, there's a nuance here that adds a, a nuance of joy. It's like speci- it's a specific Greek word that's a joyful greeting. It's not just a hello. It's actually an, a really, really happy greeting. And this also struck my imagination because we don't think, I don't think we think about this very much, but Jesus was joyful. Jesus was overjoyed to see these women again. Like, think about that for a second. Usually we focus so much on the human response to the resurrection, but Jesus' resurrected state, he was excited. Like, man, I love that. There's a mutual joy in this encounter. Jesus is overjoyed to see these friends, and they are, of course, overjoyed to see him. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, again, set aside the doubts, all the things that the ticker tape that goes through your mind about why this can't be true. Set that aside for a second. Just think, how joyful would you be to be there? Just like, let that, if nothing else, let that grip you this morning. The mutual joy exchanged in this encounter is so overwhelming for me to think about. I mean, I can't wrap my mind around it, and that's okay. I'm not, I don't need to wrap my mind around it, but it fills me with a power just to think about that. And of course, of course, the result is the women fall at his feet. That's, it's almost like this natural reaction. They fall at his feet in worship. And I want to say, too, that I would hope that our worship would flow out of joy as well. Not all the time. It can't always be that. Sometimes we need to grieve. Sometimes we need to lament. But, man, if joy could be the fuel for our worship, what a powerful thing. I just think that that's like it, it's, it's the natural response. They're so overwhelmed in this mutual joy is exchanging. They just worship. That's just what you do in the face of the joy of actual resurrection imagination. It's just what you do. You can't help but worship because it is something that is so utterly more powerful than what you can conceive of or come up with yourself. And I think that that is what I think God wants for us to experience too, even in our, even in our 
our age with its own plausibility structures that I've talked about. And so I want to end now on a specific observation about this interaction with the people, the Jesus people. And then after this, we're going to go to communion, where we'll really sing one more song together. But this may seem simplistic. This may seem simplistic, but I, I don't think it is. And I want to end on this observation that Jesus initiates. Jesus initiated the encounter. Of course, Jesus initiated. God initiated the resurrection. Big picture, right? God initiated the resurrection, but that Jesus specifically initiates the encounter. He comes to these women. And what I want to say about that is I think in the theme of everything I've been talking about this morning about our plausibility structures and how we imagine the world and what we think is possible, we, I, I and we, I suggest, need Jesus, need God to initiate to us in order for our structures to get to us. I can't drum up or control a resurrection imagination. I can't make myself, like, get there, you know? I can't, and I don't think you can either. If you can, maybe email me and let me know how it works. Um, that was sarcastic. Uh, so I think that it just as Jesus initiated to these women, like, this needs to be given to us. I can't drum it up. I can't make it work. I can't convince myself. I can't convince you. That's why I said earlier I'm not going to use logical proofs and, and whatever. It is something that is so utterly, I mean, the word transcendent means outside of us, right? Like, it is something that is so utterly outside of us that it needs to be given to us, sparked in us. The good news is that it's freely offered. <laughs> That's the good news, that this resurrection proclamation, this imagination, this newness, this renewal, it's freely offered. It's not something you need to, to strike a deal to get. It's not something you need to, I don't know, do X, Y, and Z to get. It is freely offered, and I think that is part of why it's so important that we proclaim this story every Easter, if not more often. We proclaim it because in that proclamation, God stirs up our imaginations again and gives us freely this gift, this gracious gift of a renewed imagination and renewed hope, renewed faith, and, of course, renewed love. So we, I hope and pray that this morning as we share this story together, as we share communion together in a minute, as we sing more, I just pray that it's something that is done through the longing for the Holy Spirit to enliven our hearts to live as though this story really is true. Really, really true. I mean, just imagine the implications of a moment to live as though resurrection is true. And the implications of that are that there is a God who is operating. And not, not, not only that, but there is a God who loves you to such an extent that that God is willing to go through all of this, to break open your imaginations by divine love so that nothing could then separate you from him. How would that fuel Everything you do living out of this faith, how might that change everything, all the ways you operate? I'm not, not going to go into specific examples. There's just too many. Your, your money, your family, your job, your everything. To live as though resurrection is undeniably true and that, therefore, death is actually not the end of your story. All the ways we operate out of fear of death need not be. It is not the end of your story. It is not 
the thing that has no power over you. And even as I say that this morning, all I can pray is that the Holy Spirit would grab, would, would fill those words and grip us anew. Let me pray for us and we'll change gears for a moment. Lord, give us a renewed imagination. May we find our company with those women on the road and not with those men striking deals in the back room somewhere, Lord. Would you break open our imagination? Let us live with abandon in this news of resurrection in a new way as we go out from this place. Because, Lord, wherever we come from in in our hearts this morning, at whatever place we're at emotionally, Lord, we proclaim that he is risen. We proclaim he is risen. And, Lord, we hold on to it by faith. May you enliven our lives and our hearts and our imaginations and all the parts of us as we go out from this place on this Easter day. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I believe Joey's going to come up and do communion now, and then we will sing one more song afterwards. I'm going to want to start by saying that I was praying for this last Lord's Day for you and your wife. So the death, the resurrection of our mom and dad Kelly was and to me this is a great reminder of the last Lord's Day being start by reading from Jeremiah, uh, the words of God foretelling his rescue plan for humanity, his new covenant to be sealed by Jesus through the actions and sacrifice of Christ himself. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt covenant which they broke, although I was not with them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not keep the day, nor warn his neighbor and not warn his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and their sin I will no longer remember. And now some words from Jesus. Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. After a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, 
will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. God, what a great, what a great day to celebrate with you, Father, to celebrate this moment. celebrate God but cause us to consider the act of Jesus that you have sacrificed for us how we how we can respond to that sacrifice thank you for this great day father and I pray that you bless the people here father help us to capture this moment